202, the number of traffic-related fatalities in New York City in 2018, a record low for deaths among pedestrians, bike riders, car occupants from crash incidents on city streets. The number was a reduction of 20 deaths from the 222 in 2017, which was also a record low at the time. There have been year-to-year fluctuations over time, but for more perspective, there were 299 traffic deaths in 2013, 420 in 1999, 701 traffic deaths in 1990, and 989 in 1971. Those numbers are all from the city's Department of Transportation, where our guest today is the commissioner, who is implementing the Vision Zero Street Safety Program that's credited with accelerating the decrease in traffic fatalities down to last year's 202. Polly Trottenberg is here today to discuss Vision Zero, how we use New York City streets, her role as an MTA board member, and anything else we can get into in this uh, complicated city of ours and how people get around. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Unfortunately, Maria Doulis of CBC is not here with us today because she's at jury duty, doing a different kind of civic duty than bringing you our podcast. So last week, we had on Nicole Gelinas from the Manhattan Institute and City Journal. She discussed traffic and transit and her view on things with us. Find that episode if you missed it. And we're sticking with that theme here today. So let's get to our discussion with Polly Trottenberg, the commissioner of the New York City Department of Transportation, a member of the MTA board. I think you wear a couple of other hats, but we can get to those. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, So it's really good to have a chance to talk with you. There's so many transit-related issues going on, I guess, as always, um, but it seems like that's really been elevated to the top of the discussion. Before we get into some of that and back to Vision Zero, just for listeners who might not be as familiar with you uh, or who were when you first got into city government under Mayor de Blasio five years ago or so, just a little bit about your your background before this job. Yeah, I've been DOT commissioner now for, I'm on my sixth year, a little over five years. I started in, in January when the mayor came to office. Before that, I had the honor of serving in the Obama administration at the U.S. Department of Transportation. I was undersecretary for transportation policy there. And before that, I had a long career on Capitol Hill, including working for a couple of New York senators. People know Chuck Schumer and Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Mm-hmm. Uh, federal government, uh, experience any one or two highlights from that, that that folks should know about? Well, one of the things we got to work on in the Obama administration that I'm very proud of is something called the Tiger Grants, which was an opportunity to really try and take a stream of federal dollars and actually put the money to things that were more urban-focused, helping our cities in terms of mass transit, bike projects, the kind of things that the federal government, you know, tends often to ignore. So, you know, the Obama administration was really trying to, I think, make a more city-friendly, sustainable, progressive transportation policy at the federal level. And, you know, now I'm having the chance to do that here at the local level. Mm -hmm. So you're the commissioner of the Department of Transportation. Let's put the MTA off for now, uh, your your membership uh, on the board there. What's your purview? What's, you know, you describe to people that aren't really familiar... What are you in charge of? <laughs> it's a good question. And people often confuse city DOT and the MTA, understandably, because sure. our, our, our work is very intertwined. But New York City DOT, our principal responsibility is 6,000 miles of roads in New York City, 800 bridges and tunnels, 12,000 miles of sidewalks, all the bike programs you see. Now, you know, when it comes to our roadways, of course, we work very closely with the MTA on things like bus service. We also oversee the Staten Island Ferry. 
which is now becoming the largest uh, passenger ferry in the country, all the traffic signals you see, and then a bunch of programs you'd be familiar with, city bike and car share and a whole bunch of the other sort of new mobility things. So it's a big bailiwick. Mm -hmm. And then, as you mentioned, I'm on the board of the MTA, which is the agency that oversees the subways and the buses. Big stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the buses maybe is the biggest sort of crossover. Correct. Yeah. Will you explain that a little bit? Right. I mean, how, how do you know? How do you sort of capture that? For yeah, people? because the the city really owns and designs the streets. So we sort of help create the, you know, if you see those red bus lanes, you know, we help design how bus routes work and put up the bus stops and the bus boarding islands and the traffic signals. The MTA obviously supplies the buses, the drivers. We really try and have a partnership to work together, and, and a big imperative right now for both agencies. You, you've heard it from the mayor, and you've heard it from Andy Byford, uh, uh, who's the president of New York City Transit. We're really trying to see what we can do to improve bus service in the city. Buses have been slowing, and we're losing ridership, and, and both agencies are really working hard to see if we can turn that around. I guess let's pause, let's pause that for a second. We'll come back to buses, but I do want to return to, to Vision Zero, which correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, it's sort of the signature program of your administration. Yes. Your term. Okay. So um, Vision Zero, how, how how do you capture its successes? You know, those numbers I read out and looking at the helpful information that, that DOT puts out, um, traffic fatalities have been decreasing at a pretty rapid pace over decades. Is Vision Zero definitely accelerating the pace or, you know, how do you know that Vision Zero is working? How do you capture for people exactly what what it is and how it's working? Right. It's a good question. And we are proud of it. It is a a signature uh, initiative of of the de Blasio administration. And one, you know, the mayor has invested a lot of leadership and resources, DOT, NYPD, a lot of work on all the agencies. I would at least contextualize it this way. You gave the numbers. 2013, 299 deaths on the, the streets of New York. Last year, 2018, 202. It's almost a almost a drop by a third. In that same period, nationwide fatalities went up around 14, 15%. So not only have we seen you know, a really encouraging drop in fatalities here in the city, it's very much bucking a national trend that's going in the other direction. And how'd you do that? What's the, what are the key tenets of, you know, there's Street redesigns, making sure that pedestrians have a little more time to get across the street. What are some of the what are some of the right? Things? I mean, you 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 know, there's sort of a, a traditional what's called the threes in traffic safety, which is engineering, enforcement, and education. And the city has invested aggressively in all of that. You're right. We're doing over a hundred street redesign projects every year, as you're saying, building pedestrian islands, shortening crossing distances, putting in protected bike lanes. We've done a lot of signal retimings and then work with the NYPD on what we hope is a smart and strategic enforcement strategy. And I'll take the opportunity to say we've done a lot of legislative things too, particularly up in Albany. We just had a big, I was just going to bring that a up. Big victory this week, which mm-hmm. we're very, very excited about. The city has been running since 2013 a speed camera program, uh, and we think it has been one of the key components in Vision Zero in places where we put up the cameras and we put them up near schools. We see speeding drop by over 60%. We see injuries go down by 17%. When I first came into this job, the city was operating 20 speed cameras. The first year in 2014, we got up to 140. And now the the legislature has just passed a bill that will enable us to go to 750 locations. And the governor's indicated he's going to sign it. So we're very, very excited. We think that's going to be really, really, really important in continuing to reduce fatalities. 
So I understand, obviously, the focus on schools, um, but some people might say, well, why don't we have a speed camera on every senior center? Why don't we, you know, have a, a speed camera at every busy intersection? You know, why not just have them everywhere? Why not have red light cameras on every on every light? Um, if these things work, why aren't they everywhere? Right. It's, it's a very good question. And I think I'll, I'll mention not only have the numbers increased, but our ability to sort of deploy them in a quarter mile radius more generally around schools, we think it will allow us to get to many, many of those dangerous corridors and intersections. I think the debate up in Albany has been one that has particularly focused around protecting school children, understandably. And sure. obviously, I think that's for everybody the highest mission. The bill that the legislature has just passed, I think, is going to enable us to protect children, but also to do a lot to protect New Yorkers, seniors and others all over the city. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So describe a little bit how what's, what, what's your broader philosophy sort of of, of street use of, of transit in the city? Is there a way that you sort of uh, think about this? I mean, um, I want to ask you a little bit more about sort of the proposals from City Council Speaker Corey Johnson that he recently released about a master plan for the city streets, and he wants to even go further than some of what the administration's put out on on buses and bikes. Um, but, you know, he talked about breaking the car culture. How do you sort of talk about the use of city streets and sidewalks and, and the spaces that we all occupy? Yeah, I mean, I think the way we would describe it is, you know, we're certainly looking to reduce auto usage in the city, and particularly to provide alternatives. And the providing alternatives is what we very much focused on. If you want to get people out of their cars, you've got to have good subway service. You've got to have good bus service. You have to have safe, protected bike lanes so people want to hop on bikes. You want to have a robust city bike system, for example. And we just announced at the end of last year that we're going to triple the size of city bike, and we're going to also do more dockless bike around the city. So you know, I think it's DOT's role to really make sure we're working with the MTA and all our other partners to provide all those incredible alternatives. That will get people out of their cars. I mean, we see in New York, when there's good bus and subway service, people get out of their cars. When we added, when the MTA added those few new subway stops on the 2nd Avenue subway, we saw, a, we looked at the data, we saw a real drop in traffic on the Upper East Side. Oh, interesting. I don't know if yeah. I saw that. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it, it's, you know, when you provide the alternatives, people will uh -huh. take them. So I guess that leads me to a, a different question I was going to ask, which is, why aren't we talking more about building more subway stops? Why why not go big for building out? I mean, there was the idea of going out in Brooklyn, Utica Ave, mm -hmm. uh, what, what happened there, and, and why, why don't we, and again, this wouldn't just be you, obviously, but city, state together, MTA, why aren't we talking about that? It's a great question, and I, sort of a joke I made at the time that we that it took us, it basically took us like... 10 years to open those three subway right. stops, you know, given the, the growth and, and economic dynamism of New York City, we should be opening three subway stops every year. <laughs> I mean, that's the pace, if not faster. That's how London and Paris and other big global cities are building out their systems. And it's, it's a... And there's places that would be a lot easier than the Upper East Side, Absolutely. Right, to do yeah. Of course. No, no. And it is, I think, um, you know, the biggest transportation challenge the city faces right now, that we have stopped building out our subway network, even as the city has added, really since the last sort of era of great subway building, we've added like a million and a half people. Right. And, you know, that gets into a bigger discussion of the MTA, of the governance, mm -hmm. of the funding challenges there. And obviously that's playing out in Albany right now with a discussion of both congestion pricing and MTA reform. But absolutely, you know, I get a lot of heat about the, the streets are so crowded and there's so much traffic and... You know, here's a here's a statistic I love to give. 
you know, we've been talking about the L train when we were going to have a big L train shutdown. The number of people that the L train carries in the morning rush from, say, 8 to 9 a.m. is greater than the number of people who are being carried on the Queensboro Bridge, the Queens Midtown Tunnel, the Williamsburg Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge, the Brooklyn Bridge, and the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. It just gives you an incredible sense of how efficient subways are. Right. Nothing carries people like subways. And what is the status of that Utica Ave uh, study? I mean, we've been working with the MTA on that study, but to be honest, I don't. It's not a. I think to be fair to them, a super high priority because right. they just don't have the funds right now to be in the subway line building game. And we should get them back in that game, like our like our sister cities in other places. Uh-huh. How do you get around the city? How, what's your, how often are you doing different modes of transportation? How often are you in a car? What, I, what's I your do, week look like? I do every mode every week. I try to. Uh, subway, driving. I mean, I oversee the road, so I do drive. Um, biking when I can. Uh, and then taking the ferry when I can. I don't take the ferry every week, mm-hmm. but I try and ride the Staten Island Ferry when I can, too, since it's part of what we oversee. Mm-hmm. And, uh, bu- the, and the bus? Are you, do you get on the bus? I don't get on the bus that often, uh-huh. I'll admit. I, I'm lucky where I live in Brooklyn, I'm near the subway. Uh-huh. But um, certainly, you know, as we've put up new SBS lines around the city, and I'd say particularly in conjunction now with what was going to be, uh, you know, an L train shutdown and mm-hmm. now a modified L train, but I have spent a lot of time riding the buses, uh, you know, particularly along 14th Street, the, the 14A and D, to get a sense of what we need to do there. Okay, so what do we need to? What, what's going to happen there as of as of our conversation today, um, March twenty first? What is going to happen with the L train mitigation? Where's that at? Right. Well, the, the DOT and the MTA, we are actually in a process right now of talking to elected officials, community boards, doing a new set of town halls and open houses, and we've put a couple of proposals in front of folks about what to do on 14th Street. One is what we had originally proposed when there was going to be a full L train shutdown, which is what we were calling a busway, which would be, and the street is actually at the moment designed for that because that's, you know, until January, that's what we thought we would Mm -hmm. be doing. And that would be running really dedicated bus service, allowing just very minimal vehicular access, basically local pickup and drop-off uh, and deliveries, but not through driving on 14th Street. Uh, you know, we modeled it a little bit on what they do, for example, up in King Street in Toronto, where they designed a street. That way, Andy Byford was actually part of that, and it's been very successful. Another alternative we've put on the table would be our regular SBS service, which, you know, you could see here on 34th Street or 23rd Street, where you have the dedicated bus lanes, but you still allow you know, some regular traffic flow. Mm -hmm. And I would say the regular SBS service we have seen, people can say, oh, it doesn't feel that fast, but we've seen on, you know, corridors like 23rd and 34th, we do see ridership go up. We do see travel times go up. And that's at a time, again, bucking the trend because ridership and travel times are going down in the rest of the city. On 14th Street, the M14 has been losing ridership dramatically in recent years. And we think SBS would help reverse that, a busway would do would do that even more so. Your expertise, your preference, are you more in favor of the busway or you're more in favor of the SBS? I mean, I'm more in favor of the busway, but I, you know, it's not just up to me. Obviously, sure. it's no. a discussion we're having with the community, elected officials, et cetera. And there may be potential ways we could design a busway that could get a lot of the speed benefits, but make sure it was sort of functional for people on 14th Street. One challenge with 14th Street, as opposed to 
you know, to some degree like a 34th Street, there is a lot of residential and a lot of commercial and a lot of big institutions and just balancing all the needs of everyone on the street. It's certainly been challenging. Right, right. And bikes, where, what, what's, is there a plan, any changes in the bike lane plan for what that looks like? Yeah, and I, and I would say in our defense, we've done a lot of planning yeah. on bikes in this city. And, and you can look at some of our reports. I mean, we've particularly focused on building out what I would say is a pretty connected network. You can now... Oh, apologize. I, I meant more on the, on the L train. Oh, well, on the L train. If there's oh, any shifts there, but I do want to talk larger, yeah, yeah. Um, larger bikes. Yeah. Well, L train, I mean, at the moment we've put in, you know, crosstown bike lanes on 12th and 13th street, which are working very well, I think. And, and you think those will, those are going to stay? I think those will stay, but okay. we'll, you know, we're leaving them in and, you know, we'll, so far people <laughs> seem to like them a lot. Okay. Um, so I think that's what we're anticipating. We're going to spend some more time talking to the community before we make a total final decision on that. And spring Ditto. is here, so Spring assume, is here, and that usually brings that, yeah. out the cyclist. Ditto right. Grand Street over in Williamsburg. Okay. Um, but then just to get back to sort of the bigger bike yes, question. Please. So, you know, we have been focusing on building out a big network. And I'll give you an example. You can now ride on protected bike infrastructure from Brooklyn all the way through Manhattan up to the Bronx. We're trying to create those, you know, those safe spines you can ride in from Queens Boulevard in, into Midtown Manhattan. We've been making a lot of key connections, and one of the things we're going to be focusing on in the next couple of years is what we're calling sort of our bicycle priority areas. They tend to be sort of the next tier out of neighborhoods from the core, where cycling is really picking up, but we really need to build more bike infrastructure. So a Jackson Heights or, you know, neighborhoods, again, where people are starting to really bike and we want to connect them to the network. And as much as we talked about um, the successes of Vision Zero, Clearly, fatalities are dropping significantly. Um, there's also been some a series of bike fatalities early this year. What's your sense of urgency on that? Are there things that folks should know are, are coming in reaction to that? Yeah, no, and obviously we're, we're heartsick about the spate of fatalities and, and heartbroken too. And I'll talk a little bit about what we're doing, just a little context. Sure. I mean, it, it's been... You know, over time, bike fatalities sort of per 1,000 riders have trended down. But the numbers, admittedly, have sort of been in different places. Two years ago, we had 24 cyclist fatalities. It was an awful year. Last year, we had 10. This year, unfortunately, I think that number may go up. Um, These things, obviously, like murder in the city. I mean, things have blips, and they even out, and they change over, you know, year over year. And and I always say about Vision Zero, progress isn't always going to be linear. I mean, we want to see that the long-term trends are going in the right direction. But in the case of these these tragedies with the cyclists, you know, we always go to the places where we see the crashes, see what we can do. You know, one thing that had emerged in the past couple years is that there was a desire for more protected infrastructure, particularly the crosstown streets in Manhattan. So we've put in 12th and 13th. We're going to be, you know, we've put in 26th and 29th. We're looking at 52nd and 55th. So really trying to get at places where we've seen, you know, unfortunately, some of those fatalities. We've been building out the bike network around 65 miles last year, 20 of which were protected. We've pledged to continue to pick up that pace. And we've also, you know, we talk a lot about the miles, but it's also really important that you get some of the key connections. You know, we put in a connection from the, for example, from the Brooklyn Bridge right in front of City Hall. You've probably seen it right at Park Row down to Lower Manhattan. It's a really short stretch of roadway, but it was an incredibly piece of important piece of connecting the bike network. We're doing that up, for example, on all the Harlem River bridges between 
Manhattan and the Bronx that were designed in an era where they're very unfriendly for pedestrians and cyclists, and the city's now starting to rebuild them. And as each one, as we rebuild it, we're going to recreate it and sort of remake it to be friendly for cyclists and pedestrians and allow that, you know, that safe cycling travel between Manhattan, northern Manhattan and the Bronx. Whether it's with uh, bike accidents, fatalities, crashes, um, or car-involved crashes, um, how do you avoid only being reactive, right? How do you, what tools do you use? Um, You know, obviously it seems like you're obviously basing a lot of decisions on data, what does that look like? How do you do that, and how do you try to get out ahead of, of some of these problems? Right. Well, you should take a look, or your, your listeners can take a look. We put out something called our Borough Pedestrian Safety Action Plans that are, we looked at every corridor in the city and mapped out how crash-prone they were. We looked at something called KSI, which stands for Killed and Seriously Injured, and we looked at KSI per mile, and we did it for all five boroughs. You can take a look. And we, out of that, discovered that around 7-8% of the city's roadways are responsible for about 50% of the city's fatalities. So we targeted, like a laser, those corridors and those intersections that we saw were high crash. I'm proud to say we put out our first set of these plans in 2015. We did interventions on about 90% of the key corridors and intersections we identified. We saw much bigger drops in crashes and fatalities on those quarters. We just released a little while ago, uh, sort of refresh the data. And again, that's the data we use for where we do our redesigns, where we work with NYPD on enforcement and education, where we're focusing on, for example, redesigning intersections to make them safer for cyclists by adjusting how cars turn. So we're very focused on the and is data. All, is all that done Within the DOT, do you work with other city agencies, uh, the Mayor's Office of Data Analytics? Are there other we places do. that the you mayor's, rely on? Yeah, the Mayor's Office of Operations Operation. has helped oversee a big interagency task force. Of course, we work with PD, the Taxi mm-hmm. and Limousine Commission, DCAS, on making the city's fleet and the city's drivers safer. Um, I would also note, you know, I mentioned how we sort of use data to look at the geographies of crashes, but we've sliced the data in other ways as well. For example, we noticed looking at the data, there's a spike in fatalities when you have daylight savings, Mm -hmm. when suddenly it gets darker very abruptly. People are still out getting out of school and work. And we noticed looking at data, and this is true in New York City, it's actually true nationally, that there's a huge spike in fatalities at that time of year in late October. And we launched a whole campaign called Dusk and Darkness to really educate and make people aware of that. We were seeing prior to that campaign about 40% of the year's fatalities would happen more or less in the last quarter of the year. And we've really been able to, I think, through education and enforcement and awareness, get people driving safer at that time of year. We, we also noticed that in the springtime, something we called sort of warm weather weekends, that as soon as the weather jumps to 70 degrees or so on a weekend, you also see a spike in fatalities because people suddenly, they're excited, the weather's turned warm, everybody gets out, they're sort of partying perhaps Mm -hmm. and driving around. So, you know, we've attempted to look at geography, at seasonality, at time of day, and then at driver behaviors. You know, we focus, for example, on left turns where you see three times the crashes you see in right terms. So we're, we're sort of tackling, in an epidemiological sense, we're trying to tackle... Uh, fatalities and crashes in every dimension. So we talked about the lack of build-out of, of subway 
stops and that, that's less your purview. But on some of this other stuff that's much more your purview, are you moving fast enough? Are you doing enough uh, of the bike lanes, bus, you know, protected lanes, dedicated lanes, um, and, you know, and even some of these more granular things? Is the pace what you want it to be? I mean, there's obviously a lot of, I don't want to equate the two, but there's a lot of loud voices who say, um, you're not moving fast enough, uh, including now, I guess, the city council speaker. And there's plenty of loud voices often in communities that say you're moving too quickly on some of these things. Um, again, not saying those those are equal, but um, how, how do you manage that? And, and do you feel like you're moving fast enough? I mean, look, I, I always... Of course you feel like you're moving well, fast enough. Well, no, <laughs> I approach the task with humility. I think we can always do better. But, you know, when I look at the amazing work that the men and women of my department have done, you know, the pace, at, at least at which we're doing bus lanes and bike lanes, I can't think of another city that's doing anything near what we're doing. And I think we've seen tremendous results in the drop of fatalities. There's always more to do. And we certainly accept the challenge that we can try and do more. I, I do also think that it is important, though, that we work with local communities. And particularly for things like bike and bus lanes, we want to come up with good engineering, good designs that are really going to work, that are going to be safe, that are going to work for local businesses and local residents. You know, and sometimes people are frustrated. They want us to sort of say, oh, forget the community boards and just go in and do what you need to do. And we do do that sometimes. There have been projects um, where we've said we're just going to go in, the safety imperative is there. But when we can bring people along and buy them in and, and make them part of our Vision Zero work, I think that's a better approach. And you don't want people scattering tax on bike lanes and things like that. Uh, Definitely that's a more not. extreme example of a neighborhood uh, reaction. You know, you can have one bad actor do something like that. But um, on on enforcement and, and movement, um, well, well on, the, on that last subject, so is what Corey Johnson outlined in terms of this more aggressive, you know, timeline that he wants, I mean, is that a little bit unrealistic in your view? I mean, he doesn't have to necessarily navigate all the things you have to navigate or... You know, is that a? Are those good goals? It's they're certainly ambitious. I mean, I, I I've just found that you know we are a city. You know, the sort of the politics of New York right now. It's very consultive. We have community boards and elected officials. And remember, for us, we have our local elected officials. We have our state elected officials. A lot of folks get interested in these projects. As I say, sometimes federal elected officials. Yeah. <laughs> And I understand. I mean, transportation projects are keenly felt by people in their daily lives. You know, I, I don't want to pretend it's not a big deal when we put in a bus or a bike lane or really make radical changes in the street. Um, you know, people feel deeply about that stuff, for it and against it. And, you know, that said, we can always do more. We accept the challenge. Um, you know, I think every year that I've been in this job, we've tried to be more aggressive in what we've done. But I do want to be strategic as well. I mean, I, again, in terms of numbers, sometimes that little quarter mile of bike lane that you put in in front of City Hall working with NYPD that's now connecting the Brooklyn Bridge to Lower Manhattan. It's small in distance, but it's really big in impact. So obviously we're talking with Polly Trottenberg, the commissioner of the city's Department of Transportation, MTA board member. We've got about five more minutes or so, um, and appreciate the time. Um, the city bike build-out obviously relates to um, parking, uh, not necessarily that many spots being taken up, but but let's sort of talk about parking a little bit more. Um, do you subscribe to the idea that um, we need to rethink 
how parking is approached in the city. Do we need to really reevaluate the cost of that space and, and you know, maybe do a permit system in, in various neighborhoods? Or how, how are you thinking about the future of parking? I mean, with the growth of the city, it right. has it, to be rethought. It right? is a great question. And, and there's no doubt right now parking is rather underpriced in New York City in that it's free in many places and even in our commercial zones you know, quite below what sort of the private sector parking would charge or even comparable to what some of our sister cities charge. And we were able last year to raise parking rates in the city somewhat modestly, but definitely we don't do enough to price at the curb uh, and, and something the city needs to do more of. I think in the discussion now that it's happening on congestion pricing, it's going to start potentially to get at better pricing mechanisms in the city, and, and part of that is also included a discussion about residential parking. And I think people can have very different visions of that. I think in the advocacy community, I was surprised a lot of them came out in support of it. And you know what they said to me is sort of like, it'll be like Paris, we'll charge everybody a lot of money and we'll limit the number of parking spaces. You know, there is the Parisian model, but there's what I think has sometimes been the American model, which was we charge almost nothing for that residential parking and we don't limit it much. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are a lot of different ways you can envision it working here in New York. You know, I think it's complicated to administer, but certainly as part of the congestion pricing debate, it's it's something people are talking about. Why did it surprise you for advocates to support a, a permit system? Because I think there's sort of a viewpoint that it, it then kind Encourages. of it, it enshrines the notion uh, that people who own cars are entitled to basically own a parking space. Interesting. Okay. So again, in a Parisian model where you're charging a fair amount and you're really discouraging it, it's one thing. But in a lot of American cities, the fee that's charged is, you know, it's like 35 bucks. It's very nominal. That isn't really going to discourage mm -hmm. anybody. Mm -hmm. In um, moving the buses along and moving traffic along, there's obviously the enforcement component. You have to work closely with PD. Um, that also relates, of course, to placards, placard parking, big topic of discussion. You know, uh, I don't know if I've ever seen um, maybe Twitter drive a conversation more than on the placard. Uh, it, it's usage. certainly as uh, the things that I get my name sucked into on Twitter. Placard abuse is the number yes, one for sure. Yes. Um, so where does that stand? I mean, the mayor's announced a couple different plans. Obviously, you've yeah. been there, PD. Um, how do how does the city both on just larger enforcement of uh, you know my my thought goes immediately just to the bus lanes but larger enforcement of the bus lanes but then also the placard issue how do we sort of get over the hump there i mean what is it what is it going to take right i mean i will say i think congestion pricing if we get it will make a tremendous difference i mean that will overall hopefully reduce the number of vehicles in the center city so we'll see what happens up in albany with that for bus lanes, you know, the city has limited ability to use camera enforcement, and that authority is derived up in Albany. It would really help us to have much more ability to use camera enforcement, because as much as PD can try and enforce, and the mayor announced seven new NYPD bus lane tow truck mm -hmm. squat teams, and, and I think that's terrific, NYPD isn't going to be everywhere all the time. But cameras really can be. So we have them on some of our select bus service routes, to have the ability to do more camera enforcement, both installed on city infrastructure and on the MTA buses themselves, I think that will be tremendously helpful in the bus lanes. Placard abuse, very challenging. Yes, I was with the mayor when he announced you know, some new initiatives, a couple that are in DOT's bailiwick that I, I'm hoping will bear some fruit. We are moving towards a system. First, we're doing sort of an interim system where we're putting basically green dashboard 
decals in people's cars, which will start to cut down a bit on the placard abuse because you can't move them from car to car as you can do now. And it's going to start to help us build to what we hope will be a system where plates will all be in a computerized system and we can use, for example, license plate readers that can just go down a street and see who's parked illegally and who's parked illegally, take a bit of the human element out of it. Um, you know, that's a technological approach that we're a couple of years away from, but I think that will really help us on the enforcement front and the placard front. Forgive me for not knowing this, but um, the the use of placards by city employees, is that that's all. Is that all collectively bargained? Is there a city law? Is there a state law? There, there all of the above. Okay. Some of it is collectively bargained. Uh-huh. And, you know, for example, there was a lot of, I think, a lot written about the issue with the mayor and the Department of Education. Right. To be fair, in the Bloomberg administration, they had taken away a lot of those placards. The You know, there had been some, you know, union litigation and grievance. And in the end, uh, the courts ruled against the city and said that some of those placards had been come, had become terms of employment and could only be done away with as part of collective bargaining. So that is the case in some areas. I wouldn't say that's universal, but I would say it's generally been an issue that when you try and take placards away, it can you know fall into a grievance process and the city probably loses more often than it mm-hmm. wins. But that said, I think there's a lot more we can be doing on placards. The placards that are sort of used by city employees are one piece of the puzzle. Um, But, you know, there are state employees, there are federal employees that use them. There's obviously a lot of fraud. There are a lot of ways we can tighten up the system while still, I think, you know, enabling city employees either because they need them for work or it's part of a what has been collectively bargained to to use them. And and at least if they're going to use them, use them responsibly and appropriately. All right, I want to get a couple quick MTA questions and then we'll let you go. Um, uh, bef- before, <laughs> before I do that, I just want to come back to one question. On the, on the bikes, um, you mentioned building out city bike, building out the dockless bikes. Do you feel like the dockless bikes is something that's, that's definitely going to move forward or there's a pilot? You, you, right. We, how are you feeling about it? We did a you... pilot this past summer yeah. in the Rockaways, Fordham area of the Bronx and North Shore of Staten Island. And, and we learned... We learned some things about how they work. We particularly learned it's hard and sort of to, to pick a random geography and keep them contained. It, we sort of kept them contained on the Rockaways because it's a peninsula uh-huh. in the Bronx and on the North Shore of Staten Island. People rode them everywhere. So one thing we're, we're talking to um, the community and elected officials about is potentially doing a borough-wide pilot in Staten Island, which is a geographically confined area. Get that uh, you, water around you. you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You could really try it on a big scale mm-hmm. there, and I think there's some real interest in doing that. And right. we're looking at where some other parts of the city... And there's a reason not to do docks? I mean, you know, is there a reason if you do if you want more bikes on Staten Island, why not have them a dock system? Right. I mean, in general, as you get into sort of less and less dense areas, docks don't always sort of work as well, the Makes math and, and putting up the infrastructure. And I think... You know, the city will potentially have a mixture of the two. I would also just say writ large, I feel like the whole space of docks, of scooters, is changing very mm. rapidly. The industry is changing. It's consolidating. So, you know, we're, we're still in a bit of an experimentation phase and, and seeing what's going to work. People seem to be much more interested in the scooters now than than even the bikes and the... It, 
there's a lot of... As far of, as I can tell, it seems there, like there's some there, shifting attention or maybe that's because of the companies, you know, infusing more... There's a lot of interest in scooters, but, you know, there's a lot of questions about the model of scooters. They're not... It's not a money-making venture right now. The scooters themselves, they only last about a month or so before mm. they throw them away. Um, so a I lot think, to be determined. Yeah. yeah. I, the jury is still out. Uh-huh. I, I, I have ridden them. They're fun. <laughs> They're not legal here in New York yet. That is another thing that would have to happen up in Albany. But I think that is very much an evolving industry, too. All right. So we're not going to get to the BQE. And I had some ferry questions. I'll leave that aside. A couple quick ones on the MTA. Um, what's your, you know, you've been on the MTA board now several years. What's your... Almost five. Yeah. <laughs> saying that with with joy and enthusiasm but uh uh what's the poly trottenberg couple of key wish list points for where the mta heads i mean if there's a couple things that need to change at the mta what are they i mean i think there is no question you know we have a great leader in andy byford i think we need to give him the resources and the support he needs to continue what is clearly starting to be a real turnaround in the subway system and, you know, part of that is going to obviously happen up in Albany, mm-hmm. and, and he needs the support from the board. I do think that the MTA board is a very non-transparent and not particularly sort of accountable construct. Um, you know, I'm biased. I, I think the city has a role to play. We are a big investor in the MTA. It most directly impacts the lives of our citizens. You know, and I'd like to see the city's, you know, priorities really considered and and be more a part of what the MTA is focused on. Yeah, and how does that happen? Does that happen by just a a slight tweak to the board representation? Would that, you know, sort of maybe even it, mayor and governor, or how do you... I actually think when it comes to the MTA, the governance questions are a lot deeper than just the board. I mean, Mm -hmm. folks, folks focus on the board, but... You know, you really need to take a deeper look at how the whole capital plan process comes together, the role of our legislature, of our business community. I mean, I think there's more to it than just what happens on board days. That By the time you get to the board, the process is sort of cooked. Mm-hmm. I'd like to, I think, see the MTA and the city, you know, work together more closely leading up to whatever happens on board day. And lastly, um, it seems like when things when things got really bad with the subways, there was almost like a bit of an awakening of the mayor's appointees on the MTA board that started to be a little more assertive and a little more sort of, um, you know, frank at board meetings and things like that. Is that a misconception that I have? You know, how, how would you sort of capture, having having been more of a mainstay there, you know, how would you sort of capture the responsibility of the mayor's appointees to the board. Right. And I I had a couple years where I was really the only appointee. So it was certainly a great boost, I think, to me and to the city when sort of, you know, in a a period of pretty rapid succession, I was joined by Veronica Vanterpool, David Jones, and Carl Weisbrot, who've all been terrific members. And obviously, I think we've been able to work together. And you're right, have have a strong voice. We don't have a vote. We've never actually, I think, won a vote in the case of the MTA. But, um, you know, we've certainly been able, I think, to highlight some of the issues that have been emerging, you know, what's been happening with our subway system and, and decisions like, for example, the, you know, the, some of the station repair programs that the MTA was undertaking where, for example, they weren't adding in elevators mm-hmm. and highlighting that, you know, questions about whether if we're going to go in and repair subway stations, shouldn't we make sure we've made them accessible? And now actually the courts have spoken on that point. And, and going forward, I think the MTA is really going to have to do that. And was that... 
some people saw some real risk in that, right? Because that might slow down some rehabs. Is that not your perspective? I mean, look, it's, again, the courts have spoken. Mm -hmm. I think if if the MTA is going to go in now and do major rehabilitation work in the subway stations, unless it is absolutely technically infeasible, they're going to have to make them accessible. All right. Thank you for the time, Polly Trottenberg, Commissioner of the Department of Transportation for New York City, MTA board member. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to talk with you. Bye.